So he's telling me, do you want to be the guy walking through life looking for worry, worrying about, looking for how it's not going to work out? And what I realized in this is what he's telling me to do in life is what I do in my cases. Because, I mean, you've heard, I think you've heard me say, I mean, I've, I'm kind of, I've got some weird sayings for, for cases, but I always tell people in cases, I always say, how can they be the defense? How can they be 100% right and we still win? And the, the idea of it is it makes you think beyond the problems in your case. It makes you think, what's more important about this than the problem, right? That's how we win cases. That's my, that's my, to the degree that I have a secret sauce, that's my secret sauce. Welcome to the Tip the Scales podcast, where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of Lawring. This week, I had the pleasure of having Joe Freed back on the podcast. If you haven't listened to the first episode with Joe, I highly recommend that you start there. I do want to point out that if I could only have these types of interviews on the podcast, I would be like the happiest person on earth. Um, I really agree with the way that Joe Freed sees the world and I just really, really enjoy having him on and I really appreciate that he takes the time to do this with me. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Joe. I know that he is so, so busy. Um, okay, but this time we talked about this kind of this idea that the universe is always working for you. Even if something is super painful or frightening in that moment, eventually it becomes part of your story and everything turns out okay in the end. And just spending time worrying about whether something will work out is wasted energy. And it's something that I really, really try to work on because I am so anxious all the time and worrying about things that are most likely not going to happen. We also talked about how you can control your beliefs and the outlook on the world. Many of us feel like we don't have any control over the things that shape the way we view the world but you can actually make a conscious choice to change your preconceptions and shift how you view a situation. For example, Joe has a coach that he works with and we talked a lot about that. We also talked about being a good lawyer. There's law stuff in here, don't, don't worry. And how being a good lawyer doesn't always mean being tough. Oftentimes lawyers, especially women, might feel like they have to present a front of being tough, a badass, and just no nonsense. But being empathetic, vulnerable, and even emotional in front of a jury can sometimes help you get a better result for your client. I hope you guys enjoy this. Hi, Joe. Hello. Welcome back. I'm so glad to be here. I heard we did a good job the first time, so. I heard you did a good job. No, no, you're <laughs> you're you're being modest, but All right. I'm happy to be here. Thank for real. you. Yeah. I believe you. Um, I kind of want to pick up, like tell me how this whole coaching thing is going. The other day, um, you were telling me, and I think it was Derek in Triumph, this analogy of like a, a clear box and the stickies. Can we start there? Uh, sure, we can. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, to back up a, a second, I've been coaching with a guy who's been really helping me see things in um, new ways. And uh, he's got little analogies that, that kind of have helped me. So maybe they help other people. And in, 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 to some degree, when I share this with you, then you'll see why it, it kind of almost becomes now a language like for my people to talk about. Well, you, you know, know what's crazy? 
So Derek and I have actually talked about it subsequently, like how this helped us see certain things. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And, and this guy keeps blowing my mind. You know, every few weeks there's a new mind blow and then I have to just kind of settle into it. And what's really neat is I've had a number of people, like a surprising number of people come up to me in the last, let's just say, month and a half or so and say, man, you feel, you, you just seem so much more chilled out than than, than before. And I'm like, I'm not, I, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> no, it, it is because, um, you know, and, and it's my truth. And I, I'll share some of those things with you. But the, the whole analogy with the with the sticky notes is, um, is so, and of course I'm not saying, and my coach isn't saying that this is what really happens, but this is the analogy, right? So before you're born into the world, you're just sort of floating out there. You're this soul and you're not worried about anything. You know, you're not worried about dinner. You're not worried about... I wonder about, what that's like. Yeah, it must be really serene, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's just, you're just floating out there. You don't need anything. There's no needs, right? I mean, you're not even worried about survival. You know, you're just out there. Your I was scared of death up until like right now. <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty cool, right? Yeah. Um, but so, so in order to sort of contain you to be born into the world, imagine you get put into a perfect, clear glass box. It's like six-sided, you know, everything is, but it's so perfect and so clear that you, you don't even know you're in it, right? Um, and then you get born into the world and almost immediately you start experiencing things and learning things. I mean, it starts off with, you know, I don't want to be in a poopy diaper, right? Uh, so that kind of goes up as a sticky note on your perfect glass. And then, you know, you're, you're, um, you learn that if you act a certain way, you get more attention. If you act another way, you get a different kind of attention. And each thing you learn and you accept as a belief is like a sticky note that goes up on your, on your wall. And your parents give them to you. Then your friends, maybe you got a nanny, the nanny does, you know, then you're, your teacher in school, your coach, you know, everybody, you know, and it, before long, if you take a peek around, you'll notice that there's no clear glass left. Everything is covered by sometimes layer upon layer of sticky note. And so the analogy is you don't really see the truth anymore. You see the truth filtered through your sticky notes. And the crazy thing is, you know, I'm sitting across from you you have a wall of sticky notes, and I have a wall of my sticky notes between us. We don't, we don't, we don't see it, but it's there. So you judge me based on your sticky notes, and I judge you based on my sticky notes. And so here's the crazy thing is, what my coach says is, everybody's behavior is a thousand percent understandable and even appropriate based on their sticky notes. Wow. So when, so for him, what he says is, instead of looking and saying, look at that person over there who's batshit crazy— Right. He says, what would my sticky notes have to be for that to be for that to be how I would think or, or how I would act? Because, you know, we do all know. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, we don't like to think about this, but we have all the roles. Right. I mean, you can if if if, you know, if if you're put in the right situation, you could kill. If you could put in the right situation. You could rise to levels that you have no idea you're even capable of now. You could do some terrible, terrible things, you know, from a judge, judging perspective, and you could do some really, really great things beyond your wildest imagination. We just have all that inside of us. 
So the reason this is so what what's happened through this process is it's kind of like become a um, it's become a little bit of a, a language. So every time I hear something that's a belief, I go, oh, that's a sticky note. I mean, so and so the coaching in some ways, the analogy is that the coaching is kind of like what we're doing is for the first time ever, we're peeling off the sticky notes and we're looking at the, each sticky note and saying, does this sticky note really serve me and humanity, right? Like, it's not a question of is it good, is it not good? Is it true, is it not true? It's really a question, does it serve? Does it serve me? Does it serve? Because it used to, maybe once upon a time, it served me. But does it serve me now? Does it? And if it does, then I can stick it back up on the, on the wall. But if it doesn't, I can rewrite it. And so let me give you a real quick example of how it got rewritten. About the time I was, you know, floating around trying to kind of living with this little concept, this is probably at this point a couple of months ago, Coach says to me, he says, hey, Joe, do you believe everything always works out okay? And I said, no. I said, some things work out okay. Some things work out better than okay. And some things work out considerably less than okay. And he said, all right, so your assignment for this week is to write as many things down as possible that you can remember from your life of things that didn't work out, you know, the, 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 the bad, the, you know, the things that didn't go the way you know, dot, 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 the painful, the harmful, you know, whatever. And so I, I put myself into it that week. And I came to him, I mean, my next coaching thing, I had three plus pages of, you know, just you know what shows from my life, you know, everything going back from, you know, very painful, painful things, my dad dying, you know, friends committing suicide, you know, getting dumped in high school. <laughs> you know, I mean, all, I thought of them as far back as I could. And so for two hours, we sat there and we examined every single one of them on my pages. And every one of them ended with a question from him. How did it actually work out in the end? Did it actually work out all right? Like not stopping at yeah. that experience, but what yeah. came from exactly. that experience. Right, exactly. So like your dad died. It was painful. You were worried about your mom. You were worried about your siblings. You were worried about all these other things. But how did it work out? I mean, like... Fast forward a little bit and look, how's your mom? She's, she's all right, you know? In fact, she's kind of, in some ways, kind of come into herself in a different sort of a way. And that doesn't make it any less painful. Right. That we, that, you know, so it's not about having gone through the pain, but it, it's that it actually worked out okay. And even with things with people dying and people getting sick, and there were very, very difficult things to go through, but at the end of the day, it actually worked out all right, you know? And so... At the very end of two hours of going through all these all these things, he goes, "Hey Joe, let me ask you a question. Does everything always work out okay in the end?" And I said, "Well, you know, so you're still not there." Uh, I said, "Actually, I'm not. You know, I'm not really there." And he goes, "All right, so this week you don't need another, you know, three pages. He's just want you to go find something that actually hasn't worked out. You've been alive almost 57 years. Go find go find one and write it down." I come back the next week and I didn't have one. You couldn't and find I one? Couldn't find one. And I challenge you. I want you to go find one that hasn't worked out. Anyway, I couldn't find one. So he goes, All right, so now I'm going to ask you again. Are you willing to accept a new sticky note, if you will, that everything always works out? And I said, You know, I still, he goes, I know what you're thinking right now. There's some pending things, right? Like <laughs> that may not work out. And he goes, I said, Exactly. That's it. You know, something's not going to work out. And he, so here's where it all came down to it all came down to this. 
He said, you're going to have one of two sticky notes. And I'm showing you this as an example. You, would get, you get to pick which sticky note you want to live with. You can have a sticky note that says, you know, everything always works out in the end. But like, what if you get sick and like you, it's like terminal and you die in two weeks? Yeah. Like, how did that work out? Okay. I want to challenge him. I did. I, you, you, he wants you to challenge him. So he would say, okay, you're not here anymore. How do you think it's going to work out? Maybe some people are going to be sad for a while. And you've done a lot to provide for people in your existence. Um, they may, they'll be sad, but they'll be okay. You know? Interesting. And even I mean, a, I, sorry. I, I will say I do think that the universe is always working for us. So even the things, and you and I have talked about this, but even like the things in my life that I, I'm like, in the moment they were so awful, like they, they, they were you. good. No, they were actually like a good thing in the end. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so here's the thing, though. So here's what he was. What his point to me for the whole exercise that took, you know, weeks to really get through, was he said, "Look, you can either go, be the guy going through life with a big sticky note centered in your glass, no matter what comes up and pops you in the face, no matter what comes up and challenges you, whether it's in a case or in life." And you can have the attitude about it that says, "You know, every everything is going to work out okay." It, this may hurt. This may be difficult. I may lose a case. I may have a problem. This might, you know, whatever. This might feel devastating in the moment, but it's going to work out okay. You can either be that guy or you can be the guy walking around worrying about things not working out. And he goes, you've just spent several weeks looking for something over a 57-year life, and you haven't found one damn thing. So which one serves you better? Which sticky note? And I'll tell you, since I've put that up, and, and so that was like the first conscious, I'm building my own damn sticky note, and I get to put my sticky note up, and I put that one, and he said, you choose where on your glass you want to put it, <laughs> right? I put that sucker front and center, and I've noticed how it's changed my life. How has it Well, I mean, it's like, like even simple, even crazy, stupid things, like I was running late as you know what to get you to. You to, um, On the um, podcast. Okay. Thank yes, you for my welcome. permission, Mom. Letting you know. Um, um, but I was late. I was I was late getting to the airport. I screwed up timing wise. You know, I thought I was going to miss the flight coming out here, and I felt everything kind of all the pressure ramping up. And I called my assistant. She said, "If you miss it, you know, you're not getting out there today." You know, I mean, everything's sold out. Everything's crazy. I'm feeling it ramp up, and I start getting to the airport. And I've realized that I've got this little special parking place at the airport, but you need a pass to get through it. I noticed I've left it in my wife's car. I'm like, oh, you know, everything's going. And then I just stopped. I said, everything's going to work out okay. You know I mean? Okay, so what happens if I miss the flight? In the big, giant scope of things, who cares a crap, right? I mean, at the end of the day, who cares? It's all going to work out fine. And I know that seems silly, but to me, it's been profound. No, because it's not silly at all. I hate being late. So I... I and I hate, it goes back to like the control, right? Like we want to control yeah. things. And if like something is like out of our control and it's changing, we just, we, we resist it, right? And it's just resisting life, really. Um, and it's something that I work on. And I think traveling a lot has made it easier for me to say, yep, there's always going to be a delay or a cancellation or I'm going to miss a connection. Like I'm just going to factor it in. I'm going to try not to stress, not to like resist. Because I think yeah. it's a really bad feeling to resist. I think you can even go further. So that's the the other piece of what he's already been coaching me on is this concept 
of any time anything feels stressful at all, you ask yourself the question, what's great about this? What's great about this situation? Okay. I like that. And so, you know, I'm, I was on another airplane and we've been delayed, 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 and we're sitting on the tarmac and they come on and they say, it's going to be another, you know, hour, you know, dot, dot, dot. And, and people are just going, you, you know, they're just, they're just, you know, pissed. And, <laughs> you need your and own I'm plane. And I'm sitting there. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I have my own plane, but I wasn't on that plane. I wasn't, I wasn't on my own plane. I know um, you do. That was you know, like setting you up. Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> But I'm sitting there, and the guy, the guy who's sitting next to me, looks at me and he goes, "Why are you like giggly?" I'm like, "I'm like, you know, is this this is ridiculous? I mean, we've been we've been delayed all these hours and blah blah blah." And I go, "You know what's great about this?" He goes, "No, tell me what's great about this." And I said, "Do you see all those people outside the window? They're trying to make the airplane work." He goes, "Yeah, I see them." I said, "I'm not one of them." Oh my god! You know, I'm not one of those guys. Okay, I said, "You know, we're sitting here, we're in first class." People are worried about how we feel. They keep bringing us drinks. They're bringing us snacks. You know, it's not so bad. I mean, you know, I'm not even in the in a middle seat in the back. I mean, people, you know, I mean, this doesn't suck. What's great about this, I get to go through the emails that I was going to have to go through when I got home. You know, my wife was going to be pissed because I'm not paying attention to her because I'm trying to get through my damn emails. Now I can get this done and, you know, dot, dot, dot. So it's not so bad. And, of course, look, you know, and we've talked about it, before everything's about the focus where do you put your focus right so i think what my coach is trying to teach me is do you want to put your focus on worry i mean worry is such a useless thing i mean it's like you're you're already giving energy to the negative thing that hasn't even happened yet and it probably won't right so you give all this energy to it it probably won't so he's telling me do you want to be the guy walking through life looking for worry worrying about, looking for how it's not going to work out. And what I realized in this is what he's telling me to do in life is what I do in my cases. Because, I mean, you've heard, I think you've heard me say, I mean, I've, I'm kind of, I've got some weird sayings for, for cases, but I always tell people in cases, I always say, how can they be the defense? How can they be 100% right and we still win? And the, the idea of it is it makes you think beyond the problems in your case. It makes you think, what's more important about this than the problem, right? That's how we win cases. That's my, that's my, to the degree that I have a secret sauce, that's my secret sauce. How do you apply that to life? So what he's asking me to do is apply it to life, to say something out there negative, you know, you're worrying about something negative. Lawyers do that in their cases. They get so, they get so stuck on the negative something in the case they can't sit there and say, what's great about this? What's mm. great about this is the defense is going to overplay this card, and that's going to give me the ability to go get a verdict that's going to knock people's socks off because they're going to overplay this, and I'm going to be able to go in and explain to the jury that that's not fair, right? So the, 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 the narrative for the case changes. And so I think the whole thing for me is, I guess what I'm trying to say is I used to be much more of a worry wart. And I'm, I'm mindful of one of my paralegals a little while ago called me Chicken Little. <laughs> Why? And I was like, I don't even know who Chicken Little Isn't is, but like this does cartoon? not sound. Uh, yeah, it's a cartoon, but I thought she was calling me Chicken Shit. And I was like, <laughs> you know, what the hell, man? I mean, you're my paralegal. Don't call me Chicken Shit. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm Chicken Shit. She goes, no, no, Chicken Little. She turned red and, you know, I'm like, I don't know what Chicken Little is. And so then they bought me the little children's book Aww. called Chicken Little. 
And Chicken Little is, you know, anytime there's any little problem, the world's going to, you know, the, the sky's going to fall down. That's what Chicken Little is. And so I'm not Chicken Little anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a cool thing. So anyway, that's, that's the, the, you know, that's the one of the profound things on the coaching side. And then we keep working on ego and subconscious and how ridiculously powerful those forces are. And how's in, that going? In life. Um, good, but are it's you, not, it's not easy to, you know, it's like he'll say, you can't make your ego go away. You can, you can tame certain things. You can retrain certain things. And you are know. you still super, super, super busy? Um, I am busy, but so, you know, again, as we're talking about the coaching, you know, his message to me is I don't care what you do. I care why you do it. So I did a, I did a hundred talks last year to right. lawyers. Crazy. Right. And he says to me, I don't care if you do 100 talks because in, in the, the reason you're doing them is because that's how you feel like you're making a difference in the world. That's how you're, you know, that's you love doing it, you know, dot, dot, dot. Because if any part of why you're doing that is you need someone to come up to you and say, wow, that was awesome. That's messed up because that's you're on a you're on a cycle there. That's just never going to, you're never going to get off that hamster wheel. You're always, it's the idea of external validation, right? Um, And so I'm still very much a work in progress. But But you're like super, I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong, but you're becoming like hyper aware of that? I'm very aware of it. And it bothers me when I, when I, um, when I see myself doing things now that is attention seeking, I know that's ego. And so I'm like, damn, why, why do I need that? You know, like I wish that I could just flip that switch and not have the need. Like, you know, some people who you just look at them and, you know, they really don't give a shit. They do not care how other people think about them. There's times when I wish I was like that. Then there's other times when I'm like, glad I'm not really like that. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I don't know that you would be who you are if you were like that you would be a different person to some extent so like how do you take it so far to not caring and still be you I don't know yeah I think I you know it's back to this idea of how far does it serve you and when does it stop serving you and does it still feel good when people come up to you and tell you how great you are well um you're assuming that happens a lot but um no it, it does and I've talked to my coach about that and he said, well, when you're truly full, when you're full, then it does, you can't be more full. And his crazy analogy was, you know, do you like Thanksgiving? I said, yeah. He goes, let's say you've just had Thanksgiving dinner and you just pigged out and you go to another friend's house. They're having Thanksgiving dinner and they go, man. And you look at it and you go, this is the best turkey dinner I've ever seen in my life. The smell is off the chain. It's great. But you've just had a huge freaking meal and there's, you can't eat anymore. You're full, and but they but they've invited you to sit down at the table, and and it's it, I know it's not the best analogy or maybe it is. It that's the idea. You've just you've you you're already full, you're, from an internal validation. You already know that you're you are good. You know you don't need somebody to come and tell you you're good. And the whole idea is, and this is what he says, and I believe this, to the degree that you give somebody the power to make you feel good, you give them the power to make you feel terrible. And so, 
and it's proportional. It's proportional. So here's the reality, and this is what he would tell me. Because if somebody comes up to you and says, "That was the worst freaking presentation. You are a piece of shit." I don't think anyone would dare. But 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 let's say let's say it happened. He would say, "Are you really a piece of shit? You're no more or less a piece of shit because someone comes up to you and tells you that than you are." The king of the universe. If someone comes up to you and says, "You're the new king of you know whatever," that doesn't make you the king of whatever. So the whole point is, you know, it, it, it's an, it. You know, he's trying to he's trying to create more of an internal validation, an internal um, yeah, validation. I think is the right is the best word. Where we're trained from the beginning of life to need external validation. I mean, when you you know you're a mom. Okay, you've got a couple of jobs with your kids, right? You want to keep them alive. You want to teach them how to be decent human beings, and you're supposed to show them some unconditional love. Yes. But my bet you're, unless you're, you know, Jen Gore has this crazy way she's bringing her kids up, which I think is incredible, trying to do it differently. But most most people use the carrot and the stick approach when they're teaching their kid, right? We to keep them alive and to teach them how to be decent humans. We're carrot sticking them, right? And so they don't really feel that love as truly and completely unconditional. I mean, I tell them, even when I'm mad, I'm like, I'm really mad at you right now, but I love you. There's nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you. But I also tell them when they do something awesome, I'm like, are you proud of yourself? How does it make you feel? Like, I don't want it to come from me telling them. I've never told them, like, I wasn't that parent that's like, good job, good job, good job, good job. It's like, are you proud of you? How does it make you feel? What did you like about that? I think that's great. Because and I do worry about the whole external validation. Yeah, well, you're thing. doing a much better job than 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 other people. And I'm not typically. perfect at it. Every now and then a good job slips out. But I know I am and sometimes aware. it's on video even. Sometimes I see it. <laughs> well those you know. <laughs> just saying. I mean sometimes I see it on video. You know, on your like what do you call it? The feed thing. The Instagram feed? Yeah. Yes. Um, well those are just I'm teasing. I'm just messing with them. But 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 what what I'm not teasing about is that's where it starts. I mean, what we do is we we as little people we are only as good as mommy tells me I am at the beginning, but, and as daddy tells me I am, and and then that becomes I'm only as good as my teacher says and my friends say and my and so the, it is very much we're trained to be to need external validation. I mean, that's how society controls us. That's how our families control us. That's how our schools control us. We're trained that way. For me, you know, it's kind of eye-opening the the whole thing we talked about earlier with the everything working out because I never really sat and thought about it that way. You know, I never thought, okay, you know, really, I mean, these are all sticky notes, right? I mean, it's, I, I now catch myself anytime I, th- anytime that somebody says something or I tell myself something that sounds like a rule I go okay that's real that's a sticky note and what that means to me is it's not necessarily true I've accepted it as true right so I have the ability if I want to I can pull that sticky note off my glass wall and look at it and say first is this always true or not and most of the time it's not always true like universally true so you get the lawyer it depends you know when you look at it and you go okay so how can I, you know, does this serve me to like pretend like it always is true? And, or is it serve me better to kind of rewrite this a little bit, um, in a way that serves? And, and, you know, some people might look at this and say, well, Joe, you're just playing a 
semantic game. Mm -hmm. It is to some degree a semantic game, but guess what? Whoever you are that thought that, so are you playing a semantic game. You know, I mean, the, the, we're all playing, we're all telling ourselves a story all the time, right? Um, and so if you're going to, if you have the power to tell yourself stories that serve you and humanity, or you have the power to believe stories that, um, that don't, and, they're, and neither one of them are more or less true, then which one are you going to pick? Yeah, why not? I, I, I agree. I think it's a perfect analogy for a couple of reasons because it touches on a couple of different things that I believe in. So one is that we pick up beliefs and they don't serve us and we don't really truly believe them. But it, it's just like part of our, our programming at this point and we have to like reprogram. So number two is that ability to reprogram and change our beliefs. But number three, you touched on this at the very beginning it touches on empathy because if we are aware that whatever someone's clear box is and they have a ton of, you know, sticky notes all over it, like you said, what caused them to have those sticky notes? And that's just empathy. It's like, okay, they're reacting to me a certain way or they're a certain way. Well, something shaped them to be that way. So it's like having empathy as to why are they like this? I, I agree. And, and look, I mean, what, and, you know, so like one of the examples that was given to me was um, um, this guy. So he's standing, he's he's in the grocery store and there's a mom and she's pushing her little girl around in a cart. And she's, I mean, she's clearly not having a good day. And the kid reaches out for something and she kind of slaps her hand. And like she's, you know, every time the kid does something that she's yelling at the kid and you, and, and so he's watching and he's like seeing the lynch mob of human beings forming, like, and you're hearing words like calling defects and, you know, um, you know, I can't believe that lady, she doesn't deserve to have a daughter, you know, and da, 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 da. And, and he said, so that's all of these people's sticky notes. Right. And, and, and the question is, are those, do those sticky notes serve? And not only serve them, but do they serve humanity? And this goes right to your empathy comment. He said, by contrast, what he did is he sat there and he sat back and he said, what would my sticky notes have to, what would my sticky notes have to be? In other words, like you're saying, what would my experiences have to have been? What would my beliefs have to be? What would my struggles have to be that are all sticky notes? Um, but what would they have to be in order for me to think that's okay? For me to act like that lady is acting toward that child. And what it allowed him to do, and this is the empathy piece, is he walked up to her instead of, I'm pissed at you and I'm going to, I want to call defects and I want to judge you. He walked up to her and he said, look, it seems to me like you're having a really hard day. How can I help? How can I, can I help? Is there something I can do to help? And of course, then she tells him her whole life story. It's not worth getting into all that here. But he was able to make a positive impact on somebody else's life because he didn't allow his he didn't allow his sticky notes to become this this mechanism towards judgment. And again, like to the degree to like we talked about before, to the degree you give somebody else the power to make you feel good, you give them the power to destroy you, right? Um, it's 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 also true that to the degree that. Um, that you can withhold judgment against other people, you can also learn to withhold judgment 
against yourself, which is, of course, another big, huge thing that we could have a whole nother session on, right? Absolutely. I mean, this self-hate stuff <laughs> that starts to happen. Right. And, and the other thing is with the whole box, you also learn to not take things personally. Because they're again, they're, they're viewing life people through their own lenses. So I just think that analogy is so perfect in so many different ways. Um, and I think we've talked about this before, how like one of my kids is so judgmental towards others, but at the end of the day, he's the most judgmental towards himself. They go together. Right. And then I have the other child who is the complete opposite. So like he doesn't judge others, so he never thinks he's being judged. So he can be himself all the time. He can laugh at himself. He can make jokes. He's a little comedian. And they just see the world so differently. Yeah. And it's to me, it's crazy. It's like it's the same household. Right. You know? It's, you know, yeah, as you know, I mean, we've had, I mean, I've, I have four kids and we've had challenges and wonderful things with all of them. But, but um, I learned a lot of things with one of my sons who is in recovery and, you know, it was a very, they were very, very tough times. But what your comment made me think about is sitting there in meetings, you know, meetings for people who are addicts or, or, um, or are related to them or uh, dealing with them or that they're part of life. Right. And probably undoubtedly people listening to this, some will have been there or are there now and I remember listening to my son tell about instances in his life, and I'm and 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 like that that didn't happen, you know, like that didn't happen in my house. That sounds like my mother. You know, so I'm like, I went home and I go, I talk to my wife. And I'm like, did did he grow up in a different house than I was, you know, the dad in? I mean, I don't remember that at all. And what struck me it, at first, I thought, oh, lying, you know, manipulative, lying addict, right? I mean that. That was my judgment. And then I realized, you know, that was, I don't think he was in that moment. There are plenty of times when he was being very judge, very manipulative. But in those moments, I think that was his internalization of his reality. I mean, that was his That's so scary, reality. And, and it is scary. I saw you, I saw your eyes when I said this. And I think you think of your kids and you think. Well, I also think of know, like my childhood because I, we, I don't think we ever talked about this, but, but my mom like completely denies my childhood. This is like the, like literally the issue between her and I is, and I'm like, in a weird way, I'm like, I almost think she believes that these things didn't happen. And then subsequently things happened as an adult between her and I that like my husband was present. Right. And then like, she denies them years later and I'm like, okay, this is just a pattern. And I'm like, I'm glad. So it's funny, like going back yeah. to the universe is always serving you. Like these experiences that I had with her as an adult that were not pleasant, they helped me understand that I wasn't crazy as a child. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, at least now this is like the good that came from it. Right. So, I mean, that happened in my house where I'm literally like, hey, this stuff happened. And she's like, that never happened. And I'm like, yes, it did. Right. And so that was the point I was making is, is then I came to the realization, well, maybe some of these things actually happen and it's me the one who just isn't seeing life. I mean, I, I'm so the bottom line is we're always telling ourselves a story. And so what's the truth? Who the hell knows? It's, that's so and it scary, doesn't even though. matter, though. And it scares me for my kids, too, because I'm like, how are they going to like our house? Is in You're messing house. them up. Yeah, we're well, all messing them up. I know. You know. I'm like, they're going to need therapy. 
we all need therapy. So yeah, no, I know. <laughs> you know, you can do like the best. This is a stressful conversation. Well, it is, but guess what? Everything always works out in the end. That is true. You know, they'll you know, figure I had it the, out, right? I had the ultimate test of it. Um, not thankfully in my my personal life. I sat with a, a friend of mine not long ago who lost a child to suicide. Oh my god! Um, I sat with him. I said, "How would it sound to you? It, is, it would sound terrible to you for me to say." I was telling him about some coaching, and I said, "Would it sound terrible if I said to you everything always works out?" And he goes, "No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound terrible because it's it's um he's I believe it. It's it, this hurts like hell right now." But we'll get through it. I mean, the sun will come up tomorrow. Um, it, I mean, there's nothing more painful than I've ever experienced and nothing more painful that I think I could ever experience than this. But I know I know there is a piece of me that, that sees that, that it will be all right. And I was like, wow, so if he can say that to me, then, you know, what the hell? I mean, my stuff has been nothing, you yeah. know? Um and so, I don't know. It's a, it's pretty. It's a pretty profound. It's been a pretty profound thing to sit there. And I would I would challenge anybody listening to this. Try it. You know, start looking. If you look at life, I mean, ask yourself the question: Are you willing to look at life and say, "I'm willing to," until somebody proves me otherwise? You know, I'm willing to look at life um, with kind of this front and center sticky note that says it's going to work out. And what that means is the way it plays out is. Stuff comes and punches you in the face. Life comes and punches you in the face in some way. The question is going to be, do you at that point, do you go to a place inside and start to worry about it and start to obsess about it and start to look for all the ways that this can take everything apart that you've worked so hard for and you know, blah, 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 and destroy your relationships and destroy your whatever? Or can you look at it and say, you know what? It hurts like hell. This is going to be tough. But, you know, in 10 years, <laughs> I'm going to look back on this, and it's not going to be life-defining. Or it's, or even it is life-defining. It's going to be life-defining in some way mm-hmm. that's po- that has a positive um, lining around it. Uh, in the Like what you were saying earlier, the things that were the toughest ended up, not, I mean, like even right then, and were good things. Can we look at it that way? And it's all between your ears. The crazy thing is we don't believe that we have the power to choose. The thing is that the thing about this whole thing that we've been talking about is people don't believe they have the power to choose how they feel. They don't, have the, they don't think they have the power to choose what their beliefs are. But it's, it's hard. I, you, I think you do have the power, but I think it's like anything in life, it's, it requires work. And I think people are just not willing to do the work to then find out if it works or not. I think it's, I'm going to say it a little different. I think people are afraid to do the work. Because Because then if it doesn't work out? No, what if I've been believing something that's bullshit? What if I've, what if my life has been held back for all this time? What if I've judged other people in ways that are inappropriate? But we have, I mean, we're human. Right, we do. Oh, like parenting is like the best, like teaching ever. Like I judged parents for so long until I had kids and even when I had babies I would judge parents with like older kids oh look at like them on their iPad or this and that and like it all just went out the window (laughs) right it's like boy do I know that feeling 
And now, like, my friends that are, like, super judgy that when they didn't have kids, when they, like, called me and told me, like, oh, I'm pregnant, I just laughed. Like, hysterically. It's like, coming, I cannot it's coming, wait. I can't wait No, literally. To see, and right. they're like, and I even told them, like, oh, I can't wait. Like, I am, this is going to be so much fun. I'm going to, I'm going to videotape this. Oh, I love it. It's like, <laughs> and it's like mean, but I don't care. It's like, I felt so judged so many times. I was the first to have kids out of my friends that now it's like payback. Yes. Well, it, it, I agree. I mean, I learned so much from my kids. I still do. I mean, you know, at each stage, you know, and now, you know, now my kids are, are like my youngest is 17 and getting ready to go off to school. And I'm thinking, all right, so, you know, my oldest is almost 30. And so I've seen, you know, the relationships change, you know, like, so you're first, you know, you're first in the, you're a parent to young kids. They, they're relying on you for everything and you're, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then at some point, you know, the, you go through these teenage years where they're tumultuous. And, oh, God, I'm not looking know, forward to that. Yeah. I'm like stressing already. I, I, I get it. But, you know, it's kind of what you start to realize, wait, that's supposed, that's kind of like, all right, so that's what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be, yeah, I'm supposed to learn how to let go of my role of being the hovering parent who, always, you know, or whatever, not hovering, but you right, get right, what I mean. No, I get it. And they say but, that it's like normal for uh teens to be so rebellious because they're learning to be their own person and they're learning but so are you you you're having to learn how to let them be that yeah i don't yeah i don't i'm not looking forward that's the the part that i'm trying to bring to surface is it's always a bilateral learning experience like when you said before i'm homeschooling and they're going to learn this i'm i'm sitting there going yeah maria you're in for an education of your own well i'm not going to be doing it yeah you are you're freaking homeschooling it's different you're changing your from the norm and so you're going to learn some things from this too and and that's great i'm not i'm not saying that to you to to worry you i think it's great you're going to learn some awesome things you also you'll also be confronted with some things that you wouldn't otherwise be confronted with so all of them are opportunities for you to now go okay cool i i get to do this right and that's what i would say to you because i would i know you would say this to me if i was crunching up like you are right now you know thinking about this the question is do you want to look at this and say i get to versus oh shit i have to no right? no no and i i'm of the belief if i get to my daughter was sick like four weeks ago and my husband was out of town and it, it was just like so difficult and i remember switching her from one room to the other because it's a long story why, but it was like middle of the night and I'm carrying her and I'm going to the other room and that's exactly what I thought. I'm going to cry. I thought I'd get to do this with her. Yeah, and I see you're emotional about it and I get that. Yeah. You know, I, I think about, um, I think about all these times when I looked at, you know, I looked at what I had to do as this terrible inconvenience of having to now I got to drive my kid here. Now it's going to take three hours to do this or that or the other thing. And I think back on those times and say, well, what precious times. I wish I had had the, the, the foresight to, um, you know, to um, understand that. Well, yeah, she's my, like, she's my baby. So I'm like, how many more times will yeah. I get to carry her from one room to the next? And, like, I have her with me, you know, like, yeah, she's alive. Yeah, amazing. She's here. You know, 
And I don't think that I would think about it that way. Like five years ago with like my then five-year-old who's 10 now. I don't think that I looked at it that way. Right. Be a little harder to carry him from room to room though now, right? I can't carry him. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. Right? I mean, he's almost my <laughs> Right. And, and, and you think back on it, you go, when did it change? When, what was that day when it changed? Yes. And so it is, it's the last, it's that, you know, you don't know when the last time you're going to get to do things. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're very much involved in the same world I am in the legal world and you're doing it from a marketing side. I'm doing it from a lawyer side, but we're still, both of us are in service of human beings at the end of the day who go through terrible life challenges, right? I mean, that's what you're marketing to, you know, to help lawyers uh, uh, do those kind of things. And I'm doing those kind of cases. And so we're both in that same field of people's tragedies. And so we, one of the things that gives us is a perspective. It does. No, my firm is, I am, I'm proud of my firm. My firm is, um, you know, we're based out of Atlanta. Now we have nine lawyers, which is bigger than I've ever thought we'd be. Do they all go to trial? Uh, Yeah, they're all, um, you know, we have one, one lawyer, Nathan, Gaffney, who is, um, I call him my lawyer. He's, uh, he keeps me between the lines on the legal side so that I can be more on the human side, frankly. So I don't, uh, so he, his background, um, I'm singling him out because his background is a little bit unique in that he comes from kind of an appellate, um, appellate trial background. So he, um, he really you know, is focused more on the legal side. So he wouldn't go, of all the lawyers we have, he's the only one who wouldn't go to trial directly as his own lead counsel. Mm. Um, so he is, um, but he, he does go to trial with me, and he is implement, he's instrumental in every case I'm involved in in all the legal aspects of them. And since we do cases all over the place, um, at last count, um, I was up to 43 states, which is kind of crazy that I've done cases in. You know, Nathan, ha- Nathan, Nathan has the important job of keeping me knowing what the law is in any given state that I'm in. You know, so Got it's it. not because there, there, there are significant differences from state to state. And even choosing where a case should be brought when you have options, a lot of work goes into figuring out which laws are going to be best for a given case when, when you have a choice. Um, but the firm is all focused on primarily commercial motor vehicle cases. Um, although we do end up in some other ones that we get pulled into and that we feel like we're the right people for. You've heard me say it before. I don't think it's a coincidence what lawyer gets what case. I think that's the universe talking. And so even at this conference that you and I are at, I talked to people the other day um, from the stage, and I said, I, I looked at it, I looked at people in, in the eye and said, that case that's sitting in your office, it's your case too. I mean, that case, you know, I mean, the theme of our talk here is that it's bilateral, right? You allow it. Um, the case comes into your life to teach you a lesson as well. And maybe that lesson is something about empathy, maybe something about your life, maybe about something about the relationships that you're not tending to, um, that you get to see an outcome and it hopefully, um, opens your eyes and, and I don't think you're ready to finish the case, whether it's with a settlement or a trial until you have figured out why that case came to you as a lawyer. 
but we jumped off the subject. But, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, our firm, we're about, um, we're about handling commercial motor vehicles the best way we can and helping other lawyers around the country be the best lawyers that they can be for their clients. So a lot of, uh, a lot of us are involved in teaching, writing, writing books, uh, doing seminars, um, and then, um, and then helping people privately. Where are um, you licensed? I'm licensed in Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, New York, and Texas. And the, all of the other states I would have gotten admitted, you know, PROHAC into. How come you don't? Take more. Um, it's a great question. I mean, it's kind of a pain in the butt, you know, that... that <laughs> and you're so busy as it is. And typically there's a... Like you're brought in, so there's someone that is. Yeah, or if I get a case and I and I and I'm not licensed there, I'll bring someone. I'll bring someone in. You yeah, know, I mean, um, it's a you know, pretty so there's, simple. There's, these days, you know, the plaintiffs bar is a very congenial bar, and we work together pretty well. Um, so I can always find somebody locally, bring me in, and and by contrast, you know, states, um, each state has their own rules with regard to to you know, being admitted there. And so um, there's a lot of reciprocity. I mean, I could go get a lot more state licenses without even taking a test, but then I have to keep up with all of their continuing education requirements and keep up with all of their, you know, unique um, stuff that ends oh, up needing to get filed every year. And, you know, you have to keep up with all of it. And, I didn't know that, yeah, that they so, were all, but it makes perfect, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, so when I come to a conference like this one that we're, we're at, I fill out five um, CLE forms, for one for each state that I'm involved in. So and you can't do the same ones for all states, like every, or you can. Well, you but you ha you have to submit them all separately, and so there's. Oh, different, I see. Okay. Yeah. So each each state kind of controls their own state bar, and the 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 requirements. And some states allow reciprocity. So like once you practiced for a little while, if you're in. You know, if like I didn't take the I didn't take the um, uh, New York bar. I just applied as a Georgia lawyer who had enough experience, number of years, and then you have to pass their kind of background checks and all that kind of stuff. And if you meet all the all the requirements, you just go up and get sworn in. But then from the minute you get sworn in, you are a full fledged New York lawyer, which means you have to follow the exact specific rules that govern any other. New York lawyer. So you have to know them. Yeah. And you have to follow them and you have to comply with all of the filing requirements and things like that. So five is enough. <laughs> I wonder who has the most. I'm sure some people have a lot. That's funny. Um, okay. Well, this question, I'm just curious, like what's next for you? Like what are you either trying to accomplish or working towards? Um, I'm working on two things now at significantly one is uh con to continue to work on some of the things we talked about last time continuing to advance my understanding and my ability to teach um about emotional state control and how that should be um that should be changing the way law is practiced oh yes i forgot you know? to ask you about this like how is that going any new breakthroughs on that um it's it's going well it's it's slowed down a little bit in terms of my my ability to spend time on it because there it's been a busy it's been a busy last 6 months 
So um, in the last two, in, in the last few weeks, I've kind of blown the dust off a few things and gotten some things cranked back up. Um, but I've I've we were doing I was doing a course where I was starting to teach it with another lawyer uh, named Chris Stombaugh, and I I purposefully stopped it because I think that we need to spend more time on the development side and kind of get it a little bit more ready before we teach. And Has I'm, I'm, anyone, have you taught it to anyone yet? You have, right? I have, yeah. And have they tried it and come back it, and said? Yeah, they've, um, they've, it's been pretty, it's been pretty neat. We've had a few, we've actually had a few people take it to trial and do things and they, they, they were, they were really, really pleased with outcomes. And so, you know, the, the, the challenge with any of this, and we're kind of talking in code if anybody hasn't listened to the last session, but the problem, you know, what we're trying to do is, is, um, is sort of t take to understand um, how emotional states impact things within the legal environment, whether it's in a deposition or at a trial or in an interview of somebody or whatever. And then we, um, um, we want to see if we can influence that. And what we've learned is that you can uh, influence it. And we're, the, the challenge is by the way, the way you influence it is by influencing your own state. You right? know what came to mind right now when you were saying, have you ever had, had the situation where somebody starts giggling like uncontrollably and next thing you know, you're laughing? You're about to start. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that yeah. like, that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It, that, that would be a great example. You it know, just so. came to me while you were talking. And the other thing that I'm working on now is I'm building a program that's designed for young women who want to be trial lawyers. You know, I'm probably genetically not competent to do this, but I've got a daughter who's just finished her first year of law school. And for a long time, I think you do know through the organizations that I'm involved in, I've been a big proponent of trying to advance women in, in, within the field. And what I've realized not long ago is how, how too many women have, I think, the wrong impression of what it takes to be a good trial lawyer. And their impression is very male-dominated. Hmm. So they look and they, too many of them, give, they give up their, their power because they think they have to be more masculine. Which is interesting because women are naturally more empathetic. Like on steroids more. Right. Right. But what I'm trying to do is I'm building a program, and I think it's going to end up being about 14 months long. Right. And the idea is going to be to, I want to pour everything I've learned, as much as what I've learned into this, um, into women coming out of school who want to do this for a living. I want to teach them about emotional state control. I want to teach, because, you know, for a woman, it's a little, it's, it's the same in many regards, but it's different in other regards in terms of emotional state control. How do you want to show up, Maria? You know, and do, do you, and, and what fears do you have about how you show up in the world? Right. And let's talk about this. Let's give it dialogue. But let's also help women deal with whatever other issues are getting in their way of being the best them that they can be. So let's bring a let's bring a you know, to the to, to the degree that in some case it might be appropriate. Let's bring a stylist in to help somebody feel better about their appearance. Let's bring a vocal person in who can help with voice and and um, and let's bring a movement person in to help. Um, help women learn how to not present themselves as small if they want to and when they want to, 
you know, and, and, and also not have to come across as masculine, it, not, not for them, I don't know, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words, and I, I hope I'm not, nobody takes this inappropriately, but my observations are that um, women, have, a lot of women have been given the wrong message about what it is, or they've accepted the wrong message about how they can best present as lawyers. And so I want to deal with those things. At the same time, I want to pour into them all of the things I've learned about strategy and all of the things I've learned about just lawyering so that we can just, so we can just have these, you know, just, just, you know, badass people out there doing this and increasing empathy in, in our field. And, you know, they'll do a better job than I will. They'll do a better job than, than you know, if, if, we, if we teach and I think that what what this program could do is shorten the learning curve. I know it sounds like shorten it. Well, you just said fourteen months, but I'm I want to I want to pack fourteen years into fourteen months, so that um, you get through this program and you you know how what you're doing to go into a courtroom. And you know, it's not something you can learn in a weekend. You know how much right. teaching I do. Yeah. And even when I used to teach at the trial lawyers college, places where people would go for three weeks solid, you came out, you're still a neophyte. You go out and the, now you're back in the real world. It's like, holy crap, you know, I don't know what the hell, I'm, what am I, what do I do now? Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I think this is going to be good and, and I'm, I'm very close to starting to roll it out. So, I mean, I think it's really tough for women because there's this weird I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but it's like, well, if you are have too strong of a character, you're then, a bitch. And it's like, there's this like fine line of like, I would assume a trial lawyer that's a female wants to be authoritative enough and confident enough. But I think women are constantly afraid of being seen as, oh, I'm just, oh, she's just being a bitch. But when the male counterpart does the same things, it's like, oh, they're a man. It's a dual standard, right? Um, but and it's self-perpetuated, and I totally agree with you. I think that you know, for some women, taking a hard approach, taking a hardline approach, um, is um, they, so like you get deemed a bitch if you're if you're tough, right? Um, but even the idea of being tough sometimes. The, t- the, bu- the toughest one of you is not someone who bows up. It's, it's the one who actually responds from empathy. Like saying it's okay to not have to be, like portray being that tough? Yeah, you don't have to. I mean, what, what is tough? Tough, is, is, tough may look very different with a female a feminine lens on it than, than what we think of as tough in a courtroom is, is thought of from a very male perspective, I think. So, so, so I think women feel like they have to act in a certain way that's not even innately how, how they are. I get it. And what you're saying is, because of everything you teach and like what you do in court is to be more empathetic and vulnerable. Right. Then it almost sounds like women are more suited. No They're much more. Look, y'all, there's no question of that, they, that they are. So if so, they just stop thinking, I have to be the way that, like, TV portrays a lawyer. And it's the lawyer they have in their head. They've put a lawyer in their head that's, that's 
that's not who they are, but they think they have to be that lawyer in order to be effective. And so, like, I, I, I was talking to a, a young woman yesterday after my talk here, and, um, and I told her, I said, let me, let me challenge you on something. And I said, you know, let's consider this for a second. You're look, look out in front of you. And I said, so right here on the right is this, this um, lawyer who's do- doing everything perfectly. They're dressed perfectly. Their hair is perfect. Everything's perfect, right? And over here on the left, there's a lawyer who can barely get the words out of her mouth. She's struggling. She's, her eyes are welling up. Her, her lip quivers. You can tell how much she loves her client. You can tell she's just trying to get the message out. But she's not anywhere near as polished as perfect person over here. Who wins? I mean, who win? I mean, who do you want to, if you're on a jury, who do you want to help? Do you want to help perfect person? Or do you want to help the person who you know loves their client and they're struggling like crazy to get you the message? They're working really hard to get it out to you, but they're the underdog. I mean, I, mean, I would hope the latter, but I don't know how. I think I, 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 you would know I guess I'm saying I hope the latter too. I think from my experience, it's the latter. I think from my life experience, I want the damn perfect person to trip over their damn shoelace. I want them to skin their pretty little knee. I want them to it not to be so freaking perfect. I want to take them down a notch and make them feel like I feel. Because guess what? I don't feel perfect. And I and don't really the love... Jury, the jury must be able to sense that. And since nobody's they're perfect, they're going to relate to the non-perfect person. Right. That's Makes right. Sense. And so what is more powerful? I think what's more powerful is not perfect. Absolutely. And so so that what I asked her when she said, absolutely, just like you, that, I think that was her word. I said, so why do you try so hard to be perfect? Because that's what I was taught to do. I said, exactly. But you think she was taught that in law school or taught that as a taught child? that in life. I okay, think we're all taught that, I so right? Okay. I mean, the guys taught that. The, you know, everybody's taught that. But it's, but it's one of the many, many things that's contraintuitive. It's like what lawyers, you know, you know, I mean, you know I'm kind of doing the speed trial thing, right? And, and it's not really about speed. It's about clarity. But lawyers are taught to put up as many theories in a case as they possibly can, and put up as much evidence as they possibly can to win a case. And that's, frankly, I think it's absurd because you're taught in law school to be an issue spotter. And what that basically means is they give you the fact pattern and they want you to spot every issue in the whole thing. I mean, and they want you to be as creative as possible in that. Like the more off the wall creative you are, the more points you get. Well, try that in a courtroom and people are gonna look at you like you're, like you're batshit crazy or, or worse. They're certainly not going to think you're credible, and they're going to feel like you're, they're getting their time wasted, and they're going to go check out, and they're going to have to listen. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, do people get bored? Like, does the bored jury get bored? Oh, my gosh. There's not there's never been a jury that hasn't been bored. And yet, I'm, I, I feel like I'm surprised we don't have to still put powdered wigs on to go into court because tr- cases are tried like they were not only 20 years ago, but 100 years ago. And now people are used to not being bored because they have uh, a that's right. cell phone. But guess what? That's taken away I from know. you. I know. So now they're sitting so there they're jonesing. They're jonesing for their, their, for their yes, cell phone. It actually gives me anxiety just thinking about it. You know, so, so you're, you're, yeah. Because you know why? But part of the reason is not only is, are you addicted to it, but you know it's, your, it's become the modern day blankie, right? You know if, God forbid, something happened with, your, with one of your kids— or 
your husband or whatever, somebody important in your life, something big happened and somebody needed to get in touch with you, they can get in touch with you with your damn phone. Yes. Right? Now it's gone. In, yeah, in no, a very short time, you're going to go, oh, my gosh, what if something's going on? Well, that happens to it. me <laughs> on planes when, like, randomly there isn't Wi-Fi. In Mexico, half the planes don't have Wi-Fi yet. And yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, two hours. I hope everything's okay. Imagine that. You're, you're a juror, right? You walk into a courtroom. You don't want to be there. No, and they took no, it away. They, they don't, you, you, so, you, number one, you're a captive. You freaking don't want to be know. there. Yeah, you're pissed because you didn't. You're sitting there going, "I should have said, I should have just lied on that damn jury questionnaire and said, you know, I, I, you know, hate all so and so kind of people, and then they would have thrown me off as being an ist, some kind of an ist, right? Yeah. Um, and I should have done that, and then I wouldn't be here. And now I'm the only I'm the only one stupid enough to not have done that, and that's why I'm freaking here. I got to, I'm with these twelve other stupid people who didn't do it. Everybody else is smarter than we were. So you're pissed. Now they go take your cell phone. And by the way, is that an iWatch? Oh, take that take that off too. Put it all in this basket. We'll give it back to you at the end of the day. Sounds like a fucking punishment. It sounds it sounds like a punishment, but it also sounds like you're back in third grade. Do I have to raise my hand to go potty? Yes, you do actually. You can't just get up and go potty. You're going to have to let us know and we're going to take we're going to have to take a whole break just for you so that you can go potty. Wow. Okay? You can't just get up up up. Well, cuz you, you can know. miss something. I right, you can't get up and leave. Time. It's back to freaking third grade and you're stuck in there. And then you have a lawyer getting up and droning on. And droning on about shit you don't give a damn about and you don't even see and understand why it's relevant to anything because they don't tell you until the very end of the case what the rules are that you're supposed to even judge the case based on. The jury charges in most states, you don't get them until the very end. So you listen to all the facts of the case. You don't even know what the hell you're supposed to be doing. Wait, why? Because that's the way it's done. But for what reason? our forefathers said so. Oh. But what's like the, the... I'm just curious, like, what is the there reason? There isn't a reason. Oh, That's okay. the formality of, I mean, somebody will tell you, you know, they'll make something up, but there's not, it, it's just the formality of things. We give you the charge at the end. You know, it, for you know, people who aren't lawyers, a lot of them may not even know, the judge usually doesn't even have what's called a charge conference, which is where the lawyers talk to the judge about the jury charge until a couple of days before the jury charge, and oftentimes the day before the jury charge is given. Mm. So, you know, nobody knows what the judge is going to even tell the jury until then in terms of what the law is. You know a little bit. You can predict it because there's certain standards that happen, but it doesn't always work out that way. So there's all kinds of things. And then, you know, you have lawyers who come in and instead of, you know, there's a doctor who's coming in to talk about um, the doctor comes in who's an orthopedist on a case. And you and the lawyer puts the orthopedist up, and and then they've been taught to personalize that orthopedist to the jury. So they start talking about where'd you go to high school? Who gives a shit where the damn orthopedist went to high school? Where'd you go to medical school? Guess what? Nobody gives a shit of that either. In most of the cases, all they care about is your first name, doctor. Yeah, great. Tell me about the freaking medicine, right? So by the time they even get to the first issue, the jury is like gone to the Amazon in their mind. You know, and they're <laughs> shopping. They're thinking about what's what. How are they going to make dinner happen? Oh, Who's absolutely. picking up the kids? I hope so and so didn't forget this. And by the way, I'm not going to know if they did or didn't because nobody can text me, and I can't text them to remind oh. them about you know blah 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 blah. And so all the neurotic people are having are having you know conniptions 
But you're and you're sitting there and you got to sit there and listen to somebody drone on and on. Assuming I'm even listening. You're not listening. That's the whole point. Yeah. Like, you know, you've gone. You've I gone, know myself well, well enough to know that it'd have to be something really interesting for me to not tune out. Yeah. And so I've got or to, I would be like, okay, I want to make sure I convince everyone of my point of view. So I'm going to listen and like. Well, but that's why you know, my theory of trial is I can't, or my theory of cases is that two things. One, the hero of the story always has to be the juror. Mm. Most lawyers think the hero of the story has to be the, the client. The hero of the story is the juror. Cause the juror is the only one who can make something happen. Right, they get to write the end of the story. The juror gets yeah, see, to write that would, it. That would motivate me to listen. Right? So that's one. The second thing is that the case has to be about the juror. Mm. You know, Steinbeck one time said something like, "If the story is not about the listener, the listener won't listen." It makes perfect sense. Okay, so that's why that's why it's different to say, "Let me tell you about a crash case," and the crash case happened three years ago to this person you've never met before. And this is what she went through. All right, you know how you you might have some empathy for that person, but it's going to be you know you're a human. By comparison, let's say I talk about you know there's this case is about a truck crash, but you know what it's really about. This trucking company runs fifty trucks through your community every week, and when I was investigating this crash three years ago, I determined that that trucking company has a really ugly safety problem and it's still doing it and it's going to keep doing it until and unless y'all tell them to stop yeah that's more powerful. okay because now you're thinking about you and your now children it's and your, your husband right and it's all about you and that's what so at the end of the day we are human animals and human animals are very self-serving very selfish very self-directed yeah. creatures so, or like any case involving a child, I would like pay attention because would, I can relate to that children. Be, but you, you hear what you just said. Yes, I'm agreeing Not with you. Not because of that child, no. but because you have yes, children. I'm agreeing with you. Right. Yeah. So, a yeah. thousand percent. Make it about that, and I would be like, That's right. Mama Bear is going to protect her kids. I really do appreciate you. And I appreciate you. I'm glad that you and I are friends. Me too. I think really highly of you. Likewise. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so much to Joe Free for everything he shared with us today. I am really so grateful that he took the time to come back on the podcast. Now, if you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way in helping others discover the show. Mm-hmm.